at least that I've given, in Matthew 24. And there's a particular part here, uh, of a particular verse, really, I want to focus on today that fits with the Feast of Trumpets. And I want to switch from Matthew uh, 24 to Luke 21, which is essentially a parallel chapter, parallel story, uh, depicting what Christ said uh, when the disciples came and asked him about the end of the age and of his coming. And he projected to this time in history, not in history, but in the future, uh, where we are today, to answer that because it had directly to do with their question. Uh, I'm not going to go back through all of Luke 21 because we've already covered uh, most of it in Matthew 24, and a lot of it is parallel. A few different points that Luke brought out that Matthew did not, and vice versa. But uh, it talked about famines and pestilence and earthquake and wars and rumors of wars and all the horrible things that were happening. And then we talked about the gospel being preached and when the abomination of desolation is set up in the temple in Jerusalem, that it is time to flee to the mountains of Judea. So that's um, a microcosm of Matthew 24, along with endure because uh, many will be offended and fall away, and that is part of what is happening right now because of the serious conditions and the breaking apart of the church and people, for whatever reason, we're on stony ground or, you know, uh, not good soil, and when these things began to occur, they lose heart or lose faith or lose uh, commitment for whatever reason. So he uh, brought that out very clearly. But let's pick it up here in Luke 21. Uh, well, verse 28 would be a good place. Now, when these things, which I just reiterated, uh, come to pass, look up. Then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draws near. In other words, pay attention, look up to God. Uh, this thing is getting very close when you see these things happening that we are witnessing before our very eyes today. And he spoke to them a parable, Behold the fig tree and all the trees. When they now shoot forth, you see and know of your own selves that summer is now near at hand. Springtime, not only the figs, but all the trees, he says. So likewise you, when you see these things come to pass, know you that the kingdom of God is near at hand. It has to be near at hand because we see these things happening in ways that we have not seen before. Truly I say to you, this generation, the one that sees these things coming to pass, this end-time generation of the church, will not pass away until my words come to pass. I was just quoting that. I didn't read it exactly. Anyway, verse 34, Take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with partying and drunkenness and the cares of this life, so that day come upon you unaware. For as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch you, therefore, and pray always, continually, frequently. Be in a mode of prayer about these things, 
when you see this coming to pass. That you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Now this is a verse that really didn't have too much meaning to people 300 or 1,000 years ago in some respects because the end was not near. Now in the Middle Ages you might have seen what was happening around you and soldiers coming through and killing and black plagues and various things and you might have read this and thought the end was near. So it has some application in every generation but we know based on many, many things, but this is indeed the last generation. And we need to be watchful and alert. Now I want to hone in on the last part of verse 36. That you be able to stand before the Son of Man. The whole point of everything he has been saying to this point is that all things need to coalesce in such a way that you are prepared, able, and ready to stand before the Son of Man when he returns. That's what our lives are all about. We want to be in the first resurrection. When that seventh trump sounds, we want to be either dead in Christ are one of those who remain alive to be changed at the same time those who are dead in Christ are resurrected. That is what we're here for. Mankind has lost sight of God and medical science and pharmacy and so on and so forth. Well, they may be trying to kill us off, but at least they avow or aver that their purpose is to try to extend our lifespan. Instead of living 70, 80 years, they even sometimes write articles about how they would like to sort things out and develop science to the point they could cause us to live almost interminably. That is one of the goals some of them have in their research and so on. We know that that is impossible, that it is appointed to all men once to die, and then the resurrection. So our whole focus, our whole reason for being revolves about around being prepared and accounted worthy when Christ returns to stand before him. To stand in such a way that we have confidence and hope and the capacity to stand and to rise. It's the whole point of what he's saying here that he gets down to. So I want today to discuss that particular phrase, to stand before the Son of Man. And we will examine various scriptures, especially right at the beginning, well, all the way through, really, about that, and put together some information. Now, the whole Bible is preparation for that, and I don't have time to read or elucidate the entire Bible today. So I picked out some scriptures that talk about standing in particular, just that one phrase that we're taking from verse 36. 
How can we be prepared? When he says, pray that you be accounted worthy, what must you do yourself that would cause him to say, I will forgive, I will show mercy, I want that one to be in my kingdom as part of the bride of my son. What must we do to be able to stand when the Son of Man comes? Now, there's a great deal in this very chapter about that. And I want to go back to verse 34, which leads up to the statement in verse 36. Take heed to yourselves. We read it, but I want to emphasize it. Lest at any time your hearts be overcharged, too much interest in, too much emphasis on, is what overcharged means, too emotionally involved with, let's say, partying or camping or sports or games or TV or anything that you consider a party that might take your focus away from God. And drunkenness, a drunkard will not enter the kingdom of God. Very clear. There's quite a few different scriptures. He doesn't tell us we can't drink. He says we just simply cannot operate as drunks. So that comes under the label of carelessness or inattention or lack of focus when we find our fulfillment in a bottle, I guess you might say, or drugs or whatever else might take the place of that but do the same thing to us. And the cares of this life, there are cares in this life that are not sinful. Well, drinking is not sinful, partying is not sinful, or those things that we might consider fun to do. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean just having a party and drinking and playing cards or whatever. It could be a whole gamut of activities that may be okay, but not if done in excess to the point it takes us away from our focus on God. That's really what he's saying here. And he sort of ropes it all into the crowd by saying the cares of this life. You know, you can get so involved in work, garden, family, uh, kids, activities, various things that we can get involved in there really are cares of this life, things that need to be done. He tells us we're supposed to work, and if we don't work, we shouldn't eat, uh, you know. So those things are there that we really are required of God to do. The problem comes when we work 18 hours a day, or we play 18 hours a day, or whatever you choose to do, that takes the place of time with God, time with His Word, with being awake and aware and watching what's coming and being prepared for it. So we have a world around us now, for those who have some awareness, who are prepping for martial law and World War III and the encroachment of the New World Order upon us. That is the focus in life, is preparing to somehow try to survive what they see coming. A great amount of the population doesn't even see what's coming and could care less and will be taken totally unawares. 
And he says the whole world is going to be taken unaware of the return of Christ. They'll have their mind on a false Christ, a false religion, a false government, a mark of the beast, and so on. And when Christ does come according to the prophecies properly understood of the Bible, they will be unaware and unprepared. So, while the world preps physically, and we should do a certain amount of that, of course, but our main prep should be spiritually, and that should be our major focus. So, even though we do have the cares of the life, what we will eat, what we will wear, you know, where we will sleep, uh, how we'll get to town, uh, we have those cares to one degree or another. But God is saying here, Christ is saying, don't let those get in the way of your spiritual preparedness. Don't let life itself take you away from God. Remembering that this life is a training ground for the world tomorrow. This life is not a goal in itself. It is merely a preparation for the future. And when we let it become all-encompassing, and our focus is on it and various ramifications of it, then we could lose out on what we're really put here to be, sons of God in his kingdom forever. That has to be our primary focus. Remember the ten virgins. Five were unprepared, didn't have any oil, and the other were scrambling to be sure they had oil. So none were probably as prepared as they ought to be. So don't lose your focus and be prepared to stand when he returns, is the summation of this particular talk he gave. Now let's go to Revelation 6. If you don't view Luke 21 as an end-time prophecy, you get in the book of Revelation, you kind of got to, don't you? Revelation 7, verse 16. Uh, and seven the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. People who have not been obeying God are going to be terrified when the signs of his return come. They will not be able to stand. In fact, they will bend over crawl into caves and under rocks and hope that they will fall on them. In other words, I would rather die than to have to face Christ. That will be the attitude. I've got to find some way to die as opposed to facing him. That in- indicates a pretty bad conscience, I think. A pretty heavily laden conscience that does not want to sit or face Christ. People who say the law is done away with, if they come into this scenario, you know what they're going to remember? The times they've broken the law. All the things that they've done that they know really shouldn't have been done, whether the law was, quote, done away with or not, those things will flash through their mind, and they're not going to want to answer for them. So they'll crawl under the rocks. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Same words we just read in Luke. His wrath is coming. Who will be able to stand?
Good question. And one that deserves some attention and an answer. And I want you here, including me, to be prepared and to be able to stand. Because here in almost the same verse, it says, when his wrath comes, people are going to run. They're not going to be prepared to stand and be confident and trust and know that they're going to be all right. Not run, but to stand. That's a tall order, isn't it? Every one of us could have things that we might not want to face with Christ. Now, he knows everything we've ever done or thought in any case, but his return will remind people of all the things that they know they don't want to answer for. So who can stand is the question asked here. Let's go to Psalm 76. Psalm 76. I know it's back here. Psalm 76. And here I want verse 7. Well, let's go to verse 6. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both the chariot and horse are cast into a dead sleep. So, when Christ comes to rebuke, horse and chariot and man in chariot, a war machine of whatever kind, are going to go into sleep. In other words, die right there. You, even you, are to be feared. And who may stand in your sight when once you are angry? Now, we could go to many, many scriptures right now that show the wrath of God and the wrath of Christ coming down on the peoples of this earth, uh, all through the prophecies, all through and including the seven last plagues and so on, showing the wrath of God and how many people are going to die as a result. So when he is angry, who can stand? You know, I have trouble. Well, he's already been angry with the church, not angry to the point of killing uh, most of the population of the earth, but he's already been angry with us and has scattered us and spewed us out. And I have difficulty now standing and lifting my hands and my face to God and feeling fully confident that everything is going to be okay because I still see my stubborn, carnal, human, deceitful, wretched, contrary, stubborn human nature, which is by itself and of itself opposed to God. And only through His Spirit can we begin to take His leading and His guidance and His help. But our human nature fights against it. We can sit and listen to a sermon and you... Sometimes you'll sit there and your nature will fight against everything that's said or read. And you'll blame God or you'll blame that verse, but more than that, you'll probably blame me because I'm the one who said it. They always stone the prophets or kill the messenger, whatever you want to say. But we'll find someone other than ourselves to blame or we'll either pass it off and say he's talking to someone else 
Or, if you think he's talking to you, you'll blame him. That's just the way our minds by nature work. I pray, usually pretty diligently, before I ever come here to give a sermon, because I want it to be God's words, not my words. I want his word to correct us, not my human approach or attitude or personality or whatever it might be. There's plenty in here to correct us, and I don't want it to be my words. I want it to be God's words. And it's almost invariably I pray about that before I ever come here. But God is the one who is going to be angry. You don't answer to me. You don't answer to your husband or wife or to some government official. You answer to God. That's where it ultimately comes to. And he's the one that we need to be able to stand before. Who can, when he's that angry, you do cause judgment to be heard from heaven, the earth feared and was still, when God rose to judgment to save all the meek of the earth. Now, he is going to throw out terrible wrath upon mankind. But his ultimate purpose is to save the meek. So the question is asked here, who will stand when he's angry? And part of the answer is obviously the meek. This can all boil down what I have to say today easily to Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, those who are poverty-stricken spiritually, who understand that, those who are peacemakers, those who are a whole bunch of attitudes there of things he's looking for that he wants in his kingdom. For theirs is the kingdom of God, is the way he puts it. So, who will be able to stand? Those who are meek. And we'll add much to that, but that's a good start. Not proud, not vain, not full of ego. Easily entreated, coached, guided, led, corrected. Because they are meek and they are humble. And their pride and vanity doesn't get in the way when someone says, this is the way, you need to walk this way. Why do we get angry when we're guided or corrected? Mainly, pride, ego, and vanity, just the opposites of meekness and humility. But when his anger is poured out, it's going to be poured out on the proud, the vain, and the egocentric. He hates vanity and pride. It's one of the things he hates. He loves meekness and humility. So, Psalm starts giving us some answers. I want to go to Malachi 3 because he, in this one, he really, really hones in on this particular subject. I picked out all the places in the Bible that pose this question of being ready to stand or who can stand. And this is the one, two, three, fourth of those, and I think it pretty well includes all of them. And here's how it starts in Malachi 3. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, 
And the Lord, whom you seek, shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, says the Eternal of hosts. So in the end time, just as before Christ first came, he sent John the Baptist to prepare the way, to start talking about the kingdom of God, to start telling people about Christ and what he would be doing and why he would be here and what his purpose was. It wasn't at that time to save the world. It was come to come and live a sinless life so that when he does come back the second time, he can indeed save the world. But there was preparation work that had to be done in his first coming. But even then, there was a messenger sent ahead of him to prepare the way. And he says here in Malachi that the same will be true here in the end time before his second coming. And he will suddenly come to his temple, to his church. Now we know in Zechariah 2, he says he will come and dwell with us in Zion. Uh, but it may not be in a visible way as we've discussed before. I don't know exactly what he means by it, but his presence will be there. But his glorious return to rule the earth is when we have to be ready to stand to either inherit eternal life or to be turned away. And that is the preparation we're talking about here. So we need to be warned and told ahead of time that we might be prepared. How do you prepare the way before Christ? Well, Isaiah 40 starts in with some of the message. We're to bring good tidings of good things to Zion and to Jerusalem, the church. But, the, but Isaiah says, well, what do you cry? That all flesh is as grass, that it withers and dies. In other words, we're human, and all flesh would eventually die, except that there is a plan of salvation whereby God will save the peoples of the earth in a series of resurrections and judgments that we understand and will rehearse from Feast of Trumpets through the last great day. So the job is to prepare people for his coming. Let's see that. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. A, finer, a refiner's fire takes all the dross, the pollutants, the various chemicals and minerals and dirt and stuff out of gold or silver or ore and leaves only the gold and the silver remaining, that which has purity, which has value. <clears throat> so he's like that. He wants us to be pure and clean, unadulterated. 99.99995 fine. As much as is possible to refine us. So if he's like a refiner's fire, that applies a lot of heat, doesn't it? A lot of pressure in order to refine. And like fuller soap, something to be scrubbed with. You know, remember Grandma's, the old song about Grandma's lye soap? 
got the cleanest washing in the land, but boy, did it abrade the skin. Rough stuff. You got scrubbed down with Grandma's lye soap. You knew you had been washed. So that's what he's paralleling this with, in a sense. Spirit soap. Something that absolutely scrubs the dirt and the filth off and makes you absolutely sparkly clean. May lose some hide, but you'll be clean. Who can stand under those conditions? You ready for that? If Christ were to come back today, would you just stand there and beam me up? <laughs> you ready for that? I think I'd be falling on my face. Please, oh please, oh please. Be scary to me. And I'm sure to be scary to all of us because we are not fully purified by far. He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver till he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the eternal an offering in righteousness. Now, there are scriptures that indicate that if we are unrighteous and bring an offering to him, he despises it. An offering is important, but it needs to be an offering in righteousness. Because an offering, let's say a monetary offering, is only money. That's all it is. But if that money is offered with a cheerful attitude and a desire to build a relationship with God and to curry His favor, and it comes from the heart, then that money means a great deal. We'll see a scripture, I think, in a little while to indicate that. But if it comes from a heart that is not true, that is unfaithful and unloyal, then it really doesn't mean much, does it? Honey, here's some roses. Yeah, buddy, what did you do? Do the roses make up the difference this time? Are those offered out of love and righteousness? Or are you in trouble some way? Now, they might help heal the breach. <laughs> I've experienced over the years when I buy my wife some flowers or roses, I go up to the rack, and it doesn't matter whether it's male or female, it's there to say, what did you do? <laughs> In fact, I said that to a guy the other day when I bought my wife some roses. So you in trouble too? We kind of joked and laughed about it. But the offering needs to be brought in righteousness is the point. <laughs> if, if you're bringing it out of penance, it doesn't have quite the same effect. So he wants an offering in righteousness. Now, does that mean you and I need to quit offering any offerings until we get righteous? Well, I don't think so. It's a process, you know. We work toward it. And we, we bring an offering to God to show our heart and whatever level of righteousness we have to offer it. And we keep working it on, on improving that so that it is righteous. And he is going to refine. He will put us through the pressure and the heat to cause us to turn to him in righteousness. 
then the offering will be truly pleasant to him. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant to the Eternal, as in the days of old, as in informer years. There was a time when people gave the offerings in righteousness. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, even though they had their own problems, they were essentially righteous. And then Israel went pretty much downhill from there, and their offerings didn't mean as much to God. See, it's an emotional thing with God. It's an emotional thing. Somebody who is doing right and living right and thinking right brings an offering. It just means more to him. That's why you pray to be worthy to escape and to be able to stand. That he have mercy, that he have forgiveness and gives you grace because of the righteousness that you display. And I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right, and fear not me, says the eternal of hosts. Very, very much in the Bible is about our relationships one with another and how we treat one another. We've been over that a lot in the last year or two. But it's critical to us being in the kingdom of God. He wants that kingdom to be peaceful and happy and all of us to be giving and loving and sharing and kind to one another. And he promises us that in that kingdom there will be no pain, no sorrow, no tears, and what we do to each other today brings pain and sorrow and tears sometimes. But it won't be that way in the kingdom of God. We will not live forever in pain and sorrow and tears. If we will not change our attitudes, and this is the proving ground, this is the testing ground, and show the kind of love toward the hiring, the riddle, the fatherless, the stranger, have compassion, hurt mercy, forgiveness. And it's not always just physical widows and orphans. What about spiritual widows and orphans and those in need? Our hearts need to be turned and kind and compassionate and a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone, as he says. So, when he terrifies... These are some of the critical issues that he talks about here. Now remember, this context right here is in who will stand when he appeareth. I'm going to refine you, and the people who do what I'm talking about here are going to be those who are able to stand when he appears. That's the whole subject here. Now, these aren't, this isn't the only place you find what we just read in verse 5 in the prophecies and in the Scripture and through the New Testament. It's all through there. So, our personal relationships are going to have a great deal to do with whether we are able to stand when he appears. I think he's making that very, very clear here. That it is salvational. Okay? 
standing when he appears means that you're prepared for the first resurrection. Right? And the first resurrection is salvation. So the adultery and the care of others and uh, false prayers, lying, all these Ten Commandments are salvational. You will not be in the kingdom of God unless you comply with those five. And he continues, For I am the eternal, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. In other words, there were offerings of righteousness in the past. Now you have departed from me, and you're not doing what I said. Now, Christ repeated this, didn't he? He says, don't get involved with the cares of this life and partying and enjoying life to the point you forget what you're here for. Some in the past had attitudes of righteousness, and then we regressed. And the church started out seeking righteousness, and then regressed, and we've been spewed. So God is in the process of putting pressure and heat on us to become what we ought to be. He's doing that out of love for us. It don't always feel like love, to use bad grammar. But it is. It's tough love to get us to be what we can be to be prepared to stand when he appears. And that's why he sends messengers ahead of time. So that we have a chance to prepare and to be ready and to be accounted worthy when it does occur. That's why I'm here, is to warn you and me and to prepare us so we will be prepared when that day comes. And the best way I can prepare you is to read these scriptures to you, and then you take it and run with it and get prepared. We're not consumed because he is a merciful and patient God. But he expects change. That's what the refining is all about. Yeah, what we are today ain't much. True. But he expects change. That's all he cares about. That's really all he cares about, is that we change. Revelation 2 and 3, To him that overcomes will I grant to sit me with me in my kingdom. Says that to all seven groups. So it doesn't make any difference which group you think you're in. You've got to overcome. If you change, he says, you will be in my kingdom. So he's not going to hold the past against us, is he? Not if we change. You'll be in my kingdom if you change. Stay like you are. That being accounted worthy gets a little dicey. But if you change, if you grow, if you overcome, that's what I'm looking for. I'm willing to forget anything in the past if you just change. And we need to be like that with each other. It doesn't matter what we've done, who we've hurt, how we've lived. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, haven't we? All that matters is we change. And if God is that forgiving and loving and disallowing of our sins, we should be with each other too. 
That's, that's how, in this test proving ground, we show him that we would live forever in peace in his kingdom, is that we change our way of communicating, our way of interacting with people who sometimes get hard to deal with. Let's face it. Some people are just a pain in the back. We all are, to one degree or another, at one time or another. It's hard for us to live in peace with all men. Paul even said it that way. As much as it is possible within you, live at peace with all men. It'll be hard because all men are not easy to get along with. People, women, doesn't matter. Children can even be hard to get along with. But we somehow have to take the high road and learn to live together in peace. That's what this boot camp is all about. So that we can then accomplish it in the kingdom of God. Fortunately, at that point, if we have lived up to it enough, he will change our very nature. If you've been a negative many, you will no longer be that. You will be positive and uplifting by nature. You will not, by nature, have lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, and envy, and all those negative issues and attitudes. They won't come natural to you. In fact, they would be strange to you. The very nature will be changed. I, I can't imagine it. I've lived with me, contrary, obstinate, stubborn, backward, backsliding, deceitful, desperately wicked for all these years by nature. And I thought it, more or less, depending on the day and the moment, all my life. And it is a struggle from day to day to be positive, to be in a good mood, to not be depressed or obsessed or frustrated or whatever. Some days go pretty good, you know. Some days I'm just looking through rose-colored glasses all day long. Well, maybe not all day, but some days are hard, or harder. Because we have to struggle with our human nature. That will change. But right now, he says, this is where you started out, and I want you, by my Spirit, to begin to change that. To be less stubborn, to be less selfish, to be less lustful, to be less all the things we are. To work on it, to change it. Doesn't come easy, comes hard. Human beings change slowly, it seems. That's why we need as much of God's Spirit as we can get in order to accomplish this. So that we can stand when He appears. Never forget that. That's what your battle is every day. Every day you wake up, your battle is to prepare yourself for standing before Christ. Remind yourself of that. Think about it. 
pray about it before you ever leave the house. My goal today is to be a loving, kind, serving, gentle, positive human being preparing myself to be that way in the kingdom of God. And to be able to stand and not go crawl under a rock when he appears. You're not consumed because I'm patient, he says. Verse 7. Even from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Now remember, this is an end time scenario. It's talking about the time when he will send a messenger to prepare his people for the return of Christ, okay? That's what this whole context is. You've turned away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you. We've read that all through the prophecies. Turn to me with all your heart and I will turn to you. Says it here. But you said, wherein shall we return? Now, boy, do we leave ourselves wide open when we ask that question. I, I sometimes fear to ask God, what do I need to change? Because i got this laundry list already in the back of my head that knows there's an awful lot there that needs to be different than it is. So I ask him occasionally, very meekly, and very quietly, <laughs> when laying on my face, what I need to change. i got enough to work on already without asking for more. And there always will be more. But you said, wherein shall we return? Now he picks out an example here. He could have said a thousand things, couldn't he? He could have brought up many, many different subjects of how we have not kept his ordinances. He picked one that is, A, important to him, and B, far more important for us than for him. Because it's one that goes right to the quick. It's one that affects probably every human being who's ever walked. <coughs> Guess what that would be? Our money. Our money. Let's read it. Even from the days of your fathers, you have come away from my ordinances and have not kept them. And you say, what do you mean? How should we return? They say, will a man rob God? <laughs> well, of course I wouldn't rob God. Why, why would I break into God's house and rob him? Would a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me in tithes and offerings. Once in a while there's somebody so bold that they will steal tithes and offerings that people have turned in. I've known it to happen in my 50 years in the ministry. How have we robbed you in tithes and offerings? You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. It's a nation that doesn't believe much in tithing, and yet it's one that God brings up right here. This is a salvational issue. 
What is the context here again? Who will stand when he appears? Who will be resurrected? He mentions Ten Commandments. He mentions those who are in need. And then he brings out this particular ordinance in the context of salvation and being changed when he appears. And it's one of his ordinances. But this is the one he chose to use. Now, tithes are a 10% of our increase, whatever that increase may be. Whether you earn money in the stock market, whether you earn it digging ditches, whether you're disabled and can't work, so it replaces money that you would have earned if you could work. It includes pensions, because that is being repaid to you as a result of your work. It's increase, in other words. So that's the tithe, and that's the first thing, is 10% of our increase. Uh, the church long ago said, even on Social Security, if you had paid on the gross amount you earned, paid tithes on that through your life, then when it comes back to you, you've already tithed on it. But if you tithed on the net, just what you got in your check, as some do, then when you receive that Social Security back, it is increased that has not been tithed on because you didn't tithe it as it's built there, if you see what I mean. So when that increase comes to you is when you owe the tithe on it. Now he says, tithes and offerings. Tithes show our heart to God to some degree. Because you have to have some concern and fear of God and fear of his laws and his ordinances in order to be willing to turn loose of one out of ten of your dollars. And it doesn't say whether you can afford the tithe or not, or whether you're poor or not. It applies to rich and poor. The first, first, uh, first 10%, the tithe, belongs to him. It doesn't belong to us. It belongs to him. So if we give a first tithe, we are only giving to God what he requires of us. Okay? That puts us in the category at that point of being an unfaithful servant. Only doing that which is required of us. That which you extract from me. <laughs> or however you want to put it. And he said he gave his tithe to the Levites for the ministry. So it is to come there, and that's what he says, that is his ordinance. Now we move to offerings, since he says offerings here. Now offerings are also salvational. That's the whole context, is salvation standing before him when he returns. Now offerings are a much greater barometer to God of your heart and where it stands with him. Because offerings are entirely uh, subjective in terms of how much you give. He says he loves a cheerful giver. And Matthew 6, verses 18 through 21, say that 
where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. So he tells us here at the end time, our hearts have been at best half-hearted, lukewarm, and he wants us to turn with our whole heart. So he then says in the Sermon on the Mount, a very pivotal, pivotal uh, sermon, if you're going to throw away the rest of the Bible and retain one part, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 will probably be the better part you better really, truly hang on to, because it pretty well summarizes the rest of the Bible. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So he ponders our free will offerings, how much we give, because that is a reflection of our heart. And how much it hurts to do it is a reflection of our heart. Witness the story of the Pharisees who were quite wealthy and doing some cheating and lying and stealing and oppressing the widow and the orphan and their own parents to get it. But they had plenty of money. The kind of people that giving 10% didn't affect their standard of living, whatever. So they would have somebody walk in front of them blowing a trumpet, and then they would pull out a big rod and thumb it a little bit and show people if it was hundreds or not, and then throw it into the collection of the offering. Vanity, pride, ego, and all the things attendant with it. But it was no sacrifice, really, for them. It was just a point of vanity. There are people today who could hand you a million dollars and it wouldn't affect them in the least in terms of their standard of living or whatever. It's pocket change. But then there was the widow who didn't have much. She had one mite. That's a very, very small amount of change. Even a mite on a chicken is so small you can hardly see it. Different type of mite, but... Now that one little mite didn't mean much in the treasury at the temple in terms of purchasing power or value and what might be done with it in terms of the temple and the Levites and whoever was there that might partake of it. It was almost nothing, minuscule. But Christ said she gave more than anybody else. She gave all that she had. Her heart was entirely on God. You want to know somebody that's truly wholehearted, it's one who gives all they have. Now, I'm not saying we need to all <laughs> sell our cars and our homes and, and our clothes and give all that we have. But what he is saying there, she didn't give her clothes. She didn't give whatever she was living on in the street or in the house. What he was saying is, at that moment, that's all that lady had was that one night, and she was willing to give it to God. It demonstrates the heart. 
Are we willing to give God heart, mind, body, and soul? To commit ourselves entirely to his purposes, to his kingdom, and having done so, to stand. How much do we give? What percentage of our heart is with God? He weighs that. He ponders that. Because it is a free will thing on how much we are willing to give, even when it hurts. Did it hurt that lady, that, that widow? She might have bought lunch with that. I don't know if it was enough to even buy lunch. But her attitude at that moment was, that's all I have, so I'll give it. I guess it might is it's kind of like having a penny. How do you divide that? Okay, I'll give God half. <laughs> no, it's just all I got. Have the penny, God. That's the attitude of heart and mind that he's looking for. And that's what he's saying here. An offering made in righteousness with a right heart. So tithes and offerings are salvational. Now this isn't my way of trying to extract money for you from you for the church. That's not my goal here whatsoever. My goal is to be sure that your heart is where it should be, and you express that through tithes and offerings to God. Many of you turn them in anonymously. I don't know where they even come from. And that's fine. I don't care. We're not here to count money. But God knows. And he's the one who counts you worthy or not at the time when Christ appears. And he's the one that brought up money. I didn't. I was just going through finding scriptures in the concordance that said stand, and particularly those who had, had to do with stand when Christ appears. And this is one of them. And in this particular one, he chose to elaborate, to go into depth and detail on it, more so than any other. And because of our lack of tithes and offerings as a nation, here at the end, he says, we're cursed with a curse. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house, and prove me now herewith, says the eternal of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Now tie that in with Haggai, where he says, what do you make? You have wages, and you bring it in, and you have a pocket with holes. It doesn't cover. Yet you live in your paneled homes. Even mobile homes have paneling, don't they? Paneled with drywall or cheap wood or whatever, but it's still paneled. You live in your homes, and yet my house lies waste. Now, this is an end-time prophecy of Malachi 3. It had less meaning... 300 years or a 1,000 years ago than it does today. It has great meaning today because we are here at the end. Messengers have been sent to prepare us, and the appearing of Christ is not very far away. So this is an end-time prophecy, and he's telling us, I want my house built, and I want your heart and your mind ready to build my house. Be it spiritual as some think, 
or spiritual and physical, as I have come to believe. Both have to be built. Now, he said, under these conditions, if you will bring what you have, even though it may hurt you, you may be poor, I still expect this of you because it shows your heart, and your heart is what I'm after. Okay? And it's salvation. People say, well, tithing is a rule, but it's not salvation. Oh, yes, it is. Read this chapter in its context, and it's as salvational as you can get. It indicates your heart. And if your heart is not with God, you ain't getting there. I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast a fruit before the time in the field, says the eternal of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed, for you shall be a delightsome land, says the eternal of hosts. Now, this nation, Ephraim, Ormanasseh, or Reuben, or any of the others, are not going to comply with Malachi 3. Nor do they at this time have salvation offered to them. That will come in the millennium of the great white throne judgment. So the ones he is addressing is us. Can't be anybody else. And we have read many scriptures how he is going to change the weather for us. He's going to put a wall of fire around us when things start getting hot and heavy. He will provide everything we need and give us as the Garden of Eden. This is an end-time prophecy fitting with Isaiah and all those others that we've read. And he's saying, if we will bring our heart as expressed in tithes and offerings to him, he will open a blessing on us instead of the curse that we have now been under that has caused us to be scattered and splintered into pieces. He'll fix it for us. Let's go on and see that. And all nations will say, those people in Zion are blessed. They'll see the blessings. Will they repent? Not on your life. Not on their life. But they'll call us blessed. And the two witnesses are going around the world. They're going to say, you see those people in Zion? They're obeying God and they're blessed. Yeah, they are. But they won't repent. Your words have been stout against me, says the Eternal. Yet you say, what have we spoken so much against you? What have we done? Well, you haven't paid your tithes and offerings with the right heart and the right amount. And what have we said against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we have kept his ordinances and that we have walked mournfully before the Eternal of hosts? I've literally had people over the decades say, I tried tithing, and it didn't work. I wasn't blessed. And I didn't have so much money coming in suddenly that I couldn't handle it. And they quit doing it. And they say, oh, he says, you haven't kept my ordinance. Which one is on the table? Tithes and offerings. That's the one he's talking about. It's salvational. It has a lot to do with the curses that we have on us right now. 
And now we call the proud happy, yea, they that work wickedness are set up, yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. Well, I may not do this, I may not do that, but God will understand. Yeah, He will. He will understand. He will understand our deceitful, desperate, wicked, selfish heart. If we keep His ordinances, He'll understand that. We are being refined like silver and gold and fuller soap so that we might stand at His appearing. Now notice verse 16. Then they that feared the Eternal spoke often one to another and the Eternal hearkened and heard and a book of remembrance was written before Him for them that feared the eternal and that thought upon his name. Those who fear God and get together and talk about God's way and about God and how do we do it better and how can I help you and how can you help me? Please pray for me. I'm having a test or a trial or a difficulty. Pray for me. I need help. People who have God and his ways in their mind and talk about it. Often we have trouble bringing up spiritual things because we feel like we'll be looked upon as self-righteous, and we might at times. Or maybe we just haven't read his word and prayed to him enough that he is what is on our minds. And if he's not on our minds, we can't talk about him. We talk about other stuff. Now, talking about other stuff is okay, as long as we don't get too much care for this world and the things of it, as he said there in Luke 21, and lose our focus on what truly is important. If you are praying and you are studying and meditating on God and the things of God, they will come out in your conversation more than if you're not doing those things. So the ones who are doing those things are the ones who talk about it and will be remembered by God when they shall be mine, says the eternal of hosts, in the day when I make up my jewels and I will spare them as a man spares his own son that serves him. When God decides who will be in the kingdom of God and will wear the crowns of righteousness and starts making up those jewels, the ones who are keeping his ordinances and have their mind on him and are focused on him are the ones who will be in his kingdom, i.e., those who will stand when he appears. Then shall we shall we return and discern between the righteousness of between the righteous and the wicked between him that serves God and him that serves him not. For behold, the day comes, this is the context again, that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, all that do wickedly, shall be stubble, and the day that comes shall burn them up, says the eternal of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch, completely consumed, gone, lake of fire. What we're talking about here truly is salvation. And God's the one that brings up what subjects are mentioned. But to you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness rise with healing in his wings, 
and you shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall, not wild animals with prickly pear in your nose, but as those who are protected in the barn and given good hay. You shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, says the Eternal of hosts. It's coming soon. It's almost here. Remember you, the law of Moses, my servant. That's the Ten Commandments and all the ordinances that went with it. This is an end-time prophecy to the people that he will be, that he's discussing, making up his jewels with. The law is still there. The ordinances are still there. In Horeb, for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments, not just the Ten Commandments, tithing wasn't included in that, or offerings, they were part of the ordinances or the statutes. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. And turning the hearts, first of all, and above all, is not physical fathers to physical children. It's turning the hearts of the children of God to their Father in heaven. That's the greatest and highest fulfillment of this verse. That's what it's all about. Now, I didn't even begin to get into the other scriptures on standing. But that's a pretty good start on who will stand when he appears on the Day of Trumpets, 2000 and... What a... 